If tomorrow starts without me, there's something you should know. While I hold you close, never let you go. Hello and welcome to The Broken Pack, a podcast focused on giving adult survivors of sibling loss a platform to share their stories and to be heard, something that many sibling loss survivors state that they never have had. Sibling loss is misunderstood. The Broken Pack exists to change that and to support survivors. I'm your host, Dr. Angela Dean. Content warning. Information presented in this episode may be triggering to some people. It contains talk of suicide. I'm so excited to share this conversation in which I spoke with Jen Hoy. Jen shares the story of losing her brother Teddy to suicide and how she's been making meaning from that loss and learning to live with her grief. She's a mental health advocate, a marathoner, and a writer. She's also currently serving on the board for the Massachusetts chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. We discuss how beginning to walk for her own peace has culminated in running marathons to honor the memories of others, loved ones who have been lost for many reasons, primarily suicide. Enjoy the episode. Thank you for joining us today. I was wondering what you want to tell our listeners about yourself. Thank you for having me. My name is Jen Hoy. I am a passionate mental health and suicide prevention advocate. I'm a board member of American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, Massachusetts chapter, and I'm a suicide loss survivor. My brother, Teddy, died in May of 2017. And the experience of losing Teddy and working through the grief and the trauma has really set me on a path of purpose. And I feel like I carry him with me every day. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Is that how you got involved in the AFSP? Yeah, AFSP. Yeah. Thank you. It, it is. <laughs> I, I I was having a particularly rough kind of grief night well into the COVID pandemic. And I was out bit late at night scrolling through the internet, as we do at 2 a.m. And I saw this thing about a marathon in a month. And I thought right now I'm walking about a marathon every couple of days. So this would be a really great way to honor my brother's memory. And you know what? Because I do a marathon every couple of days, why don't we commit to 300 miles? Because my brother, he would have walked a million miles, even if it it meant he could help alleviate someone's pain even for a small moment. So I felt like that that was the right choice to do. And once I got involved with AFSP, I really found a community of of like-minded people and people in this horrible club that we're in, uh, but who inspired me and brought me tremendous hope. Sounds like a good fit for you. Before we talk about the loss and your grief and all of those things, what do you want us to know about Teddy? So... My brother, Teddy, was born four months early in 1975. He weighed half a pound. It was a miracle. He had a twin who didn't live much longer after they were born. My brother and I, Teddy and I, were super close. We fought every single day, but I was always his protector. That was that was my job. That I took it very seriously. Mm -hmm. And even into adulthood, we were very close. We texted or talked multiple times a day, usually just 
silly stuff because one thing about my brother is he was a clown. He was a clown from when he was a little kid into adulthood. He helped my kids plan elaborate April Fool's jokes just to get me riled up. But he had so many friends and so many people who loved him because he was just a kind and gentle soul. And that's something that I was always amazed by because I was like the the rough half sister. Mm. And he was this sweet and gentle, blonde haired, angelic little boy. And I was like mm-hmm. out beating people up if they made fun mm. of him when we were little. <laughs> so you were the protective older sister. Yes. So you really lost two siblings. Yeah. Hmm. Were you highly aware of that before you lost Teddy? You lost his brother, um, or your brother as well? Well, we didn't talk about his twin, Joseph, much, if at all, growing up. Mm-hmm. And my brother was a handful. Like, mm. we were punished probably every day. He would just do things impulsively that we all found amusing, but probably not. Like, he would spray the neighbors with the hose just to see what would happen when they were on their way to a wedding or things like that. One teddy was probably more than than any of us could handle. But after Teddy passed away, my my youngest is named Joseph Edward. And Teddy's mm. first name is Edward and his twin was Joseph. And I do think a lot about what losing that sibling meant for my brother. I'm mm-hmm. sure that he felt kind of lost sometimes. And my youngest, Joey, is very much like his uncle in so many ways that sometimes when I, I go to yell at him, to stop doing something, I accidentally call him Teddy. <laughs> I think it's 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 perfect that he has both of those names. Mm-hmm. How old is your son? My youngest is twelve. So he knew your brother. Yes, yeah. and they were they were thick as thieves. My brother taught him how to spell the word butt. And yeah, how like to sing all of the do. lyrics to Baby Got Back. <laughs> and Uncle Teddy was the funnest uncle ever. And anytime they were together, I usually ended up like, please just calm down. But now I think about that spark and that chaos and the mischief. And I don't want to discourage that in my youngest. Mm. I, I encourage it. Mm-hmm. Because it reminds you of Teddy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. That's fun. What a way to stay connected through your son. You said you have two kids? Three. My oldest, Jimmy, will be 25 in November. My middle, Abigail, is 21, and then Joey. And each of yeah. them reminds me of Teddy for different reasons. Abby has his like sweet and gentle nature. And Jimmy, we used to joke that Teddy could be in the CIA because getting information from him was like impossible. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy's a lot like that. It, we just, we laugh because it's it's like, Uncle Teddy, could you just give us an answer? I don't need to know state secrets. I just want to know where you're going. <laughs> Lovely. And you were about two years apart? A uh, year and a half. Yep. Year and a half. Okay. Before we get into a little bit more, can you Talk a little bit about your role with the volunteering that you do, the advocacy. Yeah. Excuse me, advocacy. Yeah, no, it started just with that marathon in a month. And during that time, 
during that month, each day was dedicated to somebody lost to suicide. And I had also met with some of our our local politicians and to talk about the work that I was doing. And I was invited to speak to the city council and asked Jessica Vanderstad, the executive director for the Massachusetts chapter of AFSP, to come with me to share a little bit about what the purpose and the mission of AFSP was. And that was the first day that that I met Jessica. It was maybe almost two years ago. But I feel like that day really cemented what path I knew I wanted to take. Jessica mm-hmm. and I walked together for about a mile after the city council meeting and we talked and shared a lot. She offered me kind of some pathways to volunteering and it could be anything from volunteering at one of their out of the darkness walks or hosting a fundraiser or applying to run a larger race that have the fundraising commitment to support AFSP. But there are so many different opportunities. I've also done some Talk Saves Lives at suicide prevention training just for regular people because we we all have a role to play and we, we can prevent suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I think we also feel like we can try to prevent it in ways that we can't. can't. I don't know. Yeah. Yes. I I agree with that. I think the stigma around suicide, people are afraid to ask, mm-hmm. are you thinking of hurting yourself? And that really is the most important question you can ask somebody. I think as a professional, I'm obviously a little bit more comfortable asking that question than some, but I think the fear is that if if you ask that question, that person will Oh, if they weren't thinking about it, now they're going to think about it, which is not right. the case. That's not true yeah. at all. That's yeah. not how that works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for bringing that up. So what are you comfortable sharing about losing Teddy? I've written a lot about how losing Teddy really shattered my family and my whole world. I think of my life before Teddy died and after. In the early days, obviously, we we were in shock. And I remember my parents were thinking of not having a service. They didn't think that they could do that. But one of our relatives was like, we want to to honor him. So we chose to do a, a graveside service. And I thought it was nice that we had an escort from the funeral home to the cemetery. I think it was state police. Because my brother was a ranger at the Massachusetts State House for 20 years. Mm. But what I didn't realize is the reason for that is because his service had just about shut down the city. There were hundreds mm. of people. I couldn't even see people like individuals. There were a few people mm. I remember looking at directly, but just the masses and the number of people who showed up because my brother had touched their lives in some way. Mm. And that really really, I think, shattered my heart into pieces because mm-hmm. he he had affected so many people so positively in so many different ways. You think you should tell people that you love them while they're mm-hmm. living because after they're gone, what can you say? And that was, right. I. it was just, it was overwhelming. As the days went on, of course, everyone goes back to their wow. lives. And then we're left to figure it out. And honestly, 
had no idea how to figure it out. And I didn't for a long time. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you think he didn't know how many people touched his life or how many lives he touched. He was just so kind all the time. Perfect strangers or somebody would say, hey, could you help me move? And he only kind of knew them. And he would be like, sure, I'll be right there. He was one Mm -hmm. of those people. And I think it was just who he was. So he didn't ever expect, I think, anything in return or or any recognition. I know suicide is a, a complex event and there are many things, many things that contribute to a person choosing to die by suicide. But I, I do know that you know, he was in a really difficult, like a, having a difficult time. He had lost his mm-hmm. best friend just four weeks mm-hmm. before. They worked together at the state house for the 20 years and she died from cancer. And this was just months after we lost our grandma, who was our world. And so I, I think that those two deaths really contributed to his feelings mm-hmm. of hopelessness. But again, I don't know. And that's one of those things that has been really hard for me to process and that I've struggled with all these years. Mm -hmm. And they always talk about when suicide loss groups, the tyranny of hindsight. Like Mm -hmm. I think, oh, I I think he said this or I should have done this. And the the whys Mm -hmm. and the what ifs, those are the things that keep you up at night. And I'm working hard to accept those feelings, Mm -hmm. but keep moving. Yeah. It's so hard with a lot of loss, but especially a suicide loss to to try to make sense of it. Do you live near where he lived or near your family? No, my whole family lives in Boston. I live about 30 miles south of the city, Mm. but he came to so many of my older sons, games, baseball, Mm -hmm. soccer, everything. We spent every Sunday at our grandma's. We saw each other a lot, probably a lot mm-hmm. more than than most families. <laughs> so where would you say that you are with your grieving now? We know grieving never ends, but I'm just wondering where you... Yeah, no, like, it certainly never ends. We just learned to carry it differently. Right. I felt like I was in a really great spot going into this year. I had really done a lot of work to work through all of the complex feelings associated with suicide loss. And I built a, a network of other lost survivors or other advocates in the mental health space. And mm-hmm. I had pl- planned for his day to spend it with AFSP, AFSP folks at one of their bigger events of the year. Earlier this spring, I had a couple of moments where some of the feelings surrounding Teddy's death were triggered. I don't really like that word, but it's really the only word to use. Activated, maybe? Activated, yeah. And I found myself spiraling into a really dark depression myself until the week before his, I don't like the word anniversary either, his memorial day. I I finally said, I think I need some more support. And honestly, that was probably the best thing I could have done. But Mm -hmm. if I had not, experienced all that I have through the loss and through my advocacy, I don't think I would have known Mm -hmm. to ask that question. Which speaks to this idea of there's such a expectation on timeline, especially for disenfranchised losses, such as 
sibling loss, but also suicide's another type of disenfranchised mm-hmm. grief. And so it's been how many years since he passed? Six. Six, which in the grand scheme of things isn't that long. And I wonder if if that feels different to you, if people have been like, why are you still grieving or well, what your experience has been? Yeah, so the first three years after Teddy died, I worked really hard to be strong, be the strong mm-hmm. one, be strong for my parents, be strong for my family. And I I essentially self-destructed. I went to work and I took care of my family, but I wasn't living. I had severe insomnia because I refused to sleep at night and I was feeding my emotions. I gained almost a hundred pounds. I was unhealthy mentally and physically. And so I know that and people were like, why aren't you over it? I'm not going to be over it. But until Mm -hmm. I like actually I think said to myself, I'm not going to be over it, that I wasn't able to process a lot of those feelings. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think milestones and anniversaries and birthdays would always be difficult. But then there could be a day where you hear a song and it reminds mm-hmm. you of your loved one and you just start crying in the middle of a supermarket. It's, it's, just, it's always the supermarket. It's not always, always but, but yeah, like I feel like I carry it differently now, and I feel I have found some purpose out of this this horrible tragedy. But sometimes it, it gets it still gets heavy, and there are moments in my kids' lives that I wish Uncle Teddy was here to see. Or mm-hmm. I think about as our parents are getting older, we were meant to care for them mm-hmm. in their old age, and even when I. I remember things. I'm now like the memory keeper. Yeah. And he was always there to say, that did happen. That happened. And someone was, mm-hmm. no, you, that didn't happen. Yes, it happened. But now mm-hmm. I don't have. So it's hard because you think, is my history still my history? We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Dr. Angela Dean, host of the Broken Pack podcast. If you've lost a sibling, You viscerally understand the complexity of your loss and how isolating it can feel. Sibling loss is misunderstood. And that's why I created an in-person retreat called the Sibling Grief Refuge. It's happening this August 15th through the 18th near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. This retreat will include grief-focused activities and sessions curated and facilitated by compassionate grief experts, including me. It's a space where your grief, your loss, and your sibling will be honored and understood. In addition to grief discussions, education, support, and togetherness, you will be tapping into your continuing bond with your sibling through multiple activities, such as going on a photo walk or sensory exploration and mindful walks. In our remembrance ceremony, you'll have further opportunity to honor your sibling, share your story, and hear about others' siblings. For more information, visit thebrokenpack.com forward slash retreat, or just head to thebrokenpack.com and click the sibling loss retreat link in the top menu. Spaces are limited, so secure your spot today. Let's walk this path of sibling grief together. Now back to the show. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people. I've experienced that myself, including when my mother tells me something didn't happen and I'm 
<laughs> I want I want my brother to validate that it happened. <laughs> so I get it. What would you tell yourself from either three or six years ago? Oh God! About... Don't be strong. There's no reason. There's n- nothing to gain from being strong. Mm-hmm. Feel what you're feeling. Let it go through you, and let yourself experience it. Feeling sad and experiencing grief doesn't make you weak. Mm-hmm. Living through it makes you strong. So it sounds like you're almost redefining your perception of what strength was back then from this societal idea that we don't cry, we don't deal with emotions into what actually vulnerability yeah. creates in strength. Yeah. And that's that's one of the reasons I'm so open on my social media posts, because I feel like I think if my brother had been able to read things like that, he would have been, okay, I can ask for help. Or mm-hmm. it's okay to feel this. It doesn't make me weak or it doesn't make me wrong. It's just part of being a person. Mm-hmm. Did you want to talk about the walking and the marathons and and what that is? When my brother was alive, he was the most prepared person on earth. He packed for his July camping trip in March, usually. Like it was, <laughs> his bag was packed and ready to go. When I would think about the COVID pandemic, I would think of all of the people to live through this. He's not here because he would have been prepared. He would have told me what to do and he would have kept us all laughing through the whole thing. I was a remote worker, so I was used to being home alone with just my dogs and suddenly everybody's home. And Mm. I have all of this unresolved grief and trauma and I just want to be alone. So you know, 100 pounds overweight without sleeping more than an hour a night, I decide I'm going to go for a walk. Took my dog Penelope and I made it to the end of our street, which is not even like a tenth of a mile. And I I had to take a break. But I thought, I'm going to try this again. And when I went out in my mind, I would be talking to my brother, like, how could you do this? I am stuck here in this pandemic without you. I need you. And I would just talk to him. And initially, I was so angry. All the time, Mm -hmm. all the time. But eventually, I was a little kinder to him in my mind. And I would hear songs that reminded me of our free-range childhood and Mm -hmm. memories that made me happy. And each day, I went a little bit further. And as I walked further and further, I realized I'm actually feeling a little bit more calm. That baseline anxiety and depression was was lessening and I I felt better able to function. And so we were scheduled to do a walk in September of 2020, but everything was canceled. So I decided I would do the virtual walk, but I wanted to do something to honor my brother. And so I started doing these Healing Miles Remembrance Walks. And so the first 5K of every day that September, I dedicated to a different person. I met all of these people on social media, but within those first few days, my inbox was was filled. And I realized I could walk every day for the rest of my life and not even impact a fraction of people. And so I decided to keep going. But for my my own mental wellness, I had to step back from doing every day and doing as they, they came up and rather than filling every day because that's mm-hmm. a lot to carry. And so after the marathon in the month, when I did the walk 300 miles, AFSP had sent out 
an invite to apply for the Boston Marathon. And I thought, why not? We're from Boston. Teddy loved the marathon. Teddy loved everything about the city of Boston. The only problem was I hadn't run since 1990 in high school. <laughs> and we were the worst cross-country team ever. Our, our coach was, was a nun. She was am- amazing. But she would run behind us to make sure we didn't, like, ditch the course. <laughs> I was not a good runner ever. So I applied and I got accepted. And my whole family was like, I, I, I don't think you, I don't think you can do this. What do you mean? And my Joey was like, you're going to win. I was like, not going to win, but I'm going to finish. So that's how I got started with running. And my first Boston Marathon was the October of 2021. It was the first time it had been run in October. And I remember I was at a mile 24 and I was thinking, I don't think I can finish. I think they're right. I can't finish. And I saw somebody I knew from high school in the crowd and she was like, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm running. And then I kind of like in my head, I was like, that's pretty funny that I would see her after all of these years. And I felt like it was my brother being like, you can do this. Like, mm-hmm. you got this. You, you can do it. And I finished. And that's how running marathons got started. But now every race that I do, I try to dedicate a mile to a different person and always save the last mile for my brother. Because when I need it the most, I'm going to be like, Ted, get me to the end, please. <laughs> so you started walking the marathons. You said a marathon in a month, was it? It was intended like a fun, to be like a, 26 a, miles to walk, but you 26 miles, commit to 26 miles in a month and raise funds for AFSP. But because I don't do anything the easy way, I thought, well, 26 miles in a month is nothing. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even know where I came up with 300. I just decided 300. It seemed like a lot. Okay, we'll do that. And that I was just walking at that point. And now this morning, I texted my husband and I said, oh, I just went to the gym. He said, what'd you do? I said, just five miles. And he's just five miles. Most people can't run five miles. And I was like, Mm -hmm. I'm not fast. And I think that that's the thing. I'll never be like a fast runner, but Mm -hmm. I'll never give up. Because I feel like, A, I'm too stubborn, and B, I'm carrying my brother, and I want to get him to the end each time. So it sounds like you shifted, it's almost metaphorical, like carrying the weight of the grief into this healthy, like shedding that and being able to carry him and the connection with you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And just five miles. I can't run. I'm not a runner. You keep qualifying all of these things you did with like just or in other ways. It's hard for you. I know. And I know I shouldn't do that. Like I run, so I'm a runner. But in my head, I'm still that high school student with the nun following behind me, Mm -hmm. threatening to tell my mother if I didn't finish the course because I was so (laughs) slow. After I finished my run, I always like share whatever. And one of my husband's aunts commented, you're always smiling at the end of a run. And I feel like I usually am smiling like the very end of the run because I'm just so excited that I was able to do it and prove to myself that I could do something that's mm-hmm. really hard. And so either when I'm running, I'm, I either have a horrible scowl or a maniacal smile. There's no in between. <laughs> so are you doing fundraising during these 
these runs? Is that yes, the Boston Marathon in 2021 and 2022, I fundraised for the Massachusetts chapter. I did the Los Angeles Marathon charity half, like the half marathon, and raised funds for the Los Angeles chapter. This past fall, did the same for Chicago Marathon. And next weekend, we're going to Minnesota. My husband and I are both running. We raised money for the Minnesota chapter. So my hope is to represent AFSP or raise funds for every chapter in the country at some point in my lifetime. Well, if you make it to the Pittsburgh Marathon, let me know. We can connect. <laughs> That's actually on my list. I'll watch you. I will watch you. I'm not a runner, but apparently it's hard because nothing here is flat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that information. You have a great social media. At, at least I follow you on Instagram. Are you anywhere else? Yeah, I'm on Facebook as well. And all of my posts related to mental health and advocacy, they're all public. Do you want to talk more about that? Sure. So I'm a writer by profession. That's what mm-hmm. I've done for years and years. And so it's easier for me to express myself in writing. And I, I found that sharing a lot of the feelings that I was experiencing uh, really helped me make connections with other people. I would receive messages that said, thank you for sharing that. I needed to hear that today. And so that's how that started. And then with Healing Miles, I always share about the person that I'm remembering a little bit about what their family loves most about the person and things like that. And then with the walks and the runs, all of these things I share daily and I Mm -hmm. try to share some resources or if I'm experiencing something like sharing how I'm feeling so that other people know that they're not alone. And I always try to share the suicide crisis 988 number for talk and text and, and things like that. And I think a lot of times it's, it's a lot to, to keep up with, but I feel like it's an important piece of reaching other people and, and letting people know that it's, it's okay to not be okay. For sure. And I think there's such shame and stigma around suicide loss. It feels to me like it's opened up that space for people to be able to talk about it. Absolutely. And it, just from my sharing, several people have reached out when they were supporting someone in crisis or in crisis themselves and felt like they could come to me as a safe person, which mm-hmm. that is my goal. If I can help just one person know that I'm safe to talk to and I will try to connect them with help or resources, then it will all be worth it. I would trade it all to have my brother back. Right. But I feel like this is important. Yeah. I've said that too. As much as what I love I'm doing here, I would give it all up if I could have my brother back. Sorry. <laughs> that's how we connected, but that's also yeah. it's like the hidden thing that I think we don't say. Mm-hmm. Are there other things that you feel like people should know about losing a sibling or suicide loss in general? One thing that I wasn't prepared for and you don't read about anywhere really is is how you experience so many secondary losses related to the death. Were friends that I had or my parents had that just disappeared. We never heard from them, not even a text. And in the beginning, I was like, why? Like, why would, but it's really understanding that a lot of people 
are so uncomfortable with the topic and Mm -hmm. then they're not sure what to say. And so they say nothing. And then over time that, that kind of grows and they just disappear. And it's not about you. It's about how they feel about the topic. And Mm -hmm. so I think for people who know others who have lost someone to suicide, you don't have to know the right thing to say. Just be Mm -hmm. there. Probably one of the most helpful things that happened in the first weeks after my brother died was my best friend just drove down an hour from her house to bring me a cup of coffee. And we just sat on the couch. I don't even think we talked. Just being there is is important. And you don't have to know the right thing to say because there mm-hmm. is nothing that, that can be said. And then the, the sibling, losing a sibling, we're supposed to, it's supposed to be our longest relationship as your, your mm-hmm. sibling. And so I, I think a lot about kind of what I've lost in that respect, but also it changes the whole dynamic of, of an entire family. And so relearning all of your roles in the family is, it's a process and it's not going to be the same, but it's important that you find your path. Right. You had said, I felt I'd I'd lost my parents who had suffered the greatest loss of parents could endure. And then you do talk about losing friends and that discomfort piece. But I, I wonder if you still feel like you've lost your parents or that that has changed in any way. I lost the parents I had before my brother died. They're, they're irreparably changed. I, I can't even imagine how a parent could recover from that. Mm-hmm. But our relationship has gotten stronger over the last several years. And in part, I think because of the work that I'm doing, I think initially it was difficult for my parents to to see or hear about the stuff that I was doing and, and talking about my brother and talking about grief. I think it's hard for people of that generation. Over time, I, I think it has helped all of us as a family. I don't feel like I've lost them forever, but I lost who they were mm-hmm. before. It sounds like you're normalizing grief, but also normalize talking about suicide loss within your own family. Mm-hmm. And that's yes. so key. Hey, I had this thought as you were saying that, and I, I've had this conversation with other guests and other people in my life where like, our parents definitely change after this, and that's understandable. I wonder, you said they're irreparably changed. Yes, I wonder, and neither of us are going to have this answer, but I wonder if our parents feel the same way about us i would say yes yeah i know i am a very different person than i was even three years ago and i i think my parents are have told me recently that how proud they are of the work that i'm doing but also excited to see me passionate about something i am not the same person i was before teddy died or even the three years following, even my entire world and circle of friends has changed. And I, I think in a positive way, mm-hmm. I'm more like the protector of Teddy and the school schoolyard that I was when I was a kid and less concerned about, do I fit in this box kind of thing? And I think that that is not lost on anyone. I think it's 
pretty apparent. Mm-hmm. It definitely comes off in your media and even in this conversation, more so in this conversation, even that just how passionate you are about the work that you're doing. Thank you for, for doing that Thank work. You. It's hard. Thank you. I feel like it's important. And I wish that, mm-hmm. I wish that we, we're able to normalize it to a point where this is just a normal conversation that you have start with kids starting at a young age. Because I think if we normalize those conversations, it makes it easier for people to seek help. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I, I wonder what the right way is to start to talk about that with kids when we don't have a society of adults that can even talk about this. So that's a that's a huge vision. I think it's needed, but I don't know. It is. AFSP has a ton of resources available Mm -hmm. for kids starting in early elementary with they have this gizmos possum adventure and it normalizes talking about big feelings. One thing that I always did with my youngest, because he was only five when we lost six when we we lost Teddy, I just started asking him open questions. Tell me everything that's in your brain. And he could tell me something about Minecraft or Lego, but then he might say, I'm nervous to go to sleep because when I went mm. to sleep last time, Uncle Teddy died. Mm. Yeah. And just making it okay to, to have mm-hmm. big emotions It's mm-hmm. and not be like, oh, no, don't cry. Like, why don't we talk about stuff? And I think that right. that's, that's key. A lot of, as a parent, like you want to fix everything for your kids. Mm-hmm. And I think not jumping to do that has been hard for me. Mm-hmm. But it has fostered like open communication. Yeah. I I don't work with kids anymore, but I did have some training in play therapy. And it, those are also some safe ways that therapists teach parents how to have those conversations. So I'm glad that you are glad that you are working on that. So with your parents, it sounds like you're closer now. Yeah. Are there other people... That surprised you? I I know you mentioned friends, but are there other people or professionals that surprised you in their support or lack of support? Yes. Some of the people that I've met on this Healing Miles journey, I count now among my closest friends. And the same with these Team AFSP races, the connections that I've made through those those races and the teammates I've run with, it's, I, I don't want to call them my family, but they are like my family now. Some of these people I've never met in real life. And yet I feel closer to them than I do people I've known for, for many years. That said, I, I do have several friends who stuck by me, never left my side. And mm-hmm. they always know to ask, how are you doing mm-hmm. today? My, my best friend, we were 13 when we met. And so essentially she grew up with my brother as well. She has been my rock. We've been through so much together in our lifetime. She has supported me through all of it. And when I was applying to run for the first marathon, she was like, yes, you do this. You've got this. You can do this. And in my second marathon, I slowed down at mile 20. I had hurt my back and I had my phone on do not disturb, but she's one of the people that whose messages still come through. And she sent me a message in all caps. Like, I know you're hurting, get moving, you've got this. Like, she's just, I feel like everyone needs like one of her in their lifetime to be Mm -hmm. their biggest cheerleader. 
And like I said, my circle of friends has changed dramatically in the best possible way. I'm surrounding myself now, I think, with people who inspire me to be better and to do better and who understand all of this. We have a shared experience that we can support one another and just send a random text like, hey, thinking of you. And it's really been just wonderful. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Do you have any favorite memories of you and Teddy that you want to share? So many. As many as you want. (laughs) We had a pretty free-range childhood like most kids in the 70s and 80s. We were just like street urchins. And we lived in this neighborhood with tons of kids. And you just went outside and that was your life. Like you were outside. Mm -hmm. You couldn't come inside for any reason. Even if somebody was bleeding, it didn't matter. And we, we did everything together. We fought all, like when I say we fought all the time, like there was a period of time where our parents were like, okay, you cannot step foot in each other's rooms because we would just go in and just do stuff to annoy one another. But one thing that I loved to do with him is I had this like pretty big closet in my bedroom and my grandma would sneak us these big candy bars and I would keep them in a bag in my closet. And I love to read. And so I would sit in my closet with my candy bars and my strawberry shortcake sleeping bag and a a light. And I would read and my brother would come in and sit with me and he would play cards. And we would just stay there for for hours until somebody was like, where are you? (laughs) Um, A lot of times he was just like, you would be like, oh, Teddy, like all the time. What are you doing now? But it was so it's always so funny. And growing up, we lived in walking distance of our grandparents' house and a lot of our relatives. And we have a set of cousins who the girl cousin is 25 days older than me. And the boy is close in age, was close in age to my brother. And the four of us were raised like siblings. And we spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house with my cousins. And some of our best memories are just us getting I don't remember what we did leading up to it but we always got in trouble for something and if one of us got punished all four of us got punished and each of us had a different spot in my grandma's house where you had to have your like time out but my brother had to be in a spot where he couldn't see anybody because he would just make everybody laugh Hmm. (laughs) sounds like a really good brother and that you were really close yeah yeah Thank you for sharing all of this and this conversation. I'm so glad that we finally connected. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for being on. Thank you so much for listening. Our theme song was written by Joe Melwood and Brian Dean and was performed by Joe Melwood. If you would like more information on The Broken Pack, go to our website, thebrokenpack.com. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter, Wild Grief, to learn about opportunities and receive exclusive information and grieving tips for subscribers. Information on that, our social media, and on our guests can be found in the show notes wherever you get your podcasts. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share. Thanks again. You're second guessing, or you never know, you just never know.